So thanks, Josh and the band. Thanks, Joe, for the reading that we heard a little bit earlier. You might want to have that open. It's 1 Corinthians 15. And um, happy Easter. I haven't had a chance to say that yet. I hope you've had a, a lovely day. It's been great weather, hasn't it? Really nice. Um, I think one of the first times this year that I've been out in shirt sleeves and not got cold, which was good. So I want to start with a question um, on Easter Sunday today. How confident do you feel about your faith? And how confident do you feel about sharing your faith? Now, you don't have to sh- tell anyone the answer. Just think about that for a moment. Right now, at this point in time, what are your answers to those questions? Well, I don't know what they were. It's going to be different for different people. But I really hope tonight that actually looking at what is the oldest record of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians was written before any of the Gospels, uh, will really help us just to explore the implications of the resurrection, really to explore the evidence for the resurrection, and really explore why it is such good news, and that what we can share uh, with people around us. And that's right at the heart of, of where we're heading as a church, isn't it? We want to be people who reach out and share the good news. So I've been uh, looking at this passage, and actually I was, uh, just by way of a a lighter beginning, I was quite amused to spot a few phrases in the passage that we heard read that I certainly would not want to be the things that are flashing through your mind as you listen to this sermon. So uh, we can just have those on screen now. Here's the first. You might have spotted them. So that's certainly a discouraging development for a preacher, if that is indeed what has happened. Here's the next phrase I spotted. Hopefully that's not what you're thinking as you're listening to this, and here's the third. Hopefully that is not the only positive thought going through your head as we're halfway through the sermon. But actually, believe it or not, those three phrases actually connect really well with the three points that I want to make tonight, and I I will explain that as we go along. And here are the points that I hope to cover tonight about the resurrection. Here's the first. The resurrection makes sense of the evidence. We're going to spend a little bit of time just looking at what the evidence is. Why are we doing that? Just because I want us to be confident that actually this is territory that we can boldly chat to people about. We can be really confident about the evidence. Here's a second. The resurrection makes sense of the Bible. I want the resurrection not to be a sort of isolated occurrence that is unconnected to everything else in our understanding of the Bible, everything else in our theology, in our worldview. I want us to see how it all fits together. And here's the third thing. The resurrection is a powerful message to the world. I want us to be confident that actually, if we share what the resurrection truly means, this is a message people are going to want to hear. They're going to want to find out more and that you can share it with them, confident that that is the case. So that's where we're heading. And let's start then with the resurrection makes sense of the evidence. And I highlight this because it is vital that we, we remind us of just how strong the case is, just how strong a card the resurrection is to play. It seems to me that God has uh, given us different degrees of evidence and, and support historically and in other ways uh, for different aspects of Christian understanding, but the resurrection has the strongest evidence of all, I would suggest. God has made sure that we can be absolutely certain about the thing that we most need to be certain about. Jesus rose from the dead. Now, that's not to deny, of course, that actually the resurrection sounds unbelievable to modern secular ears. All of us will have friends and family who don't believe. Of course we will. 
And we all know that for many, the logical starting point is probably to think of the resurrection as a myth. Not everyone will, but some will. And I have to say that actually, though, that was also the case um, at the time that the resurrection occurred. If we think that the disciples, if we think that the Jews at the time or the Gentiles at the time were expecting Jesus to rise from the dead, we're kidding ourselves. They certainly won't and certainly weren't. And the fact remains, actually, that whether um, then or now, whether we're atheists, agnostic, Muslims or Jews or Christians, it's only the Christians who've actually come up with a plausible explanation or interpretation of the events of that first Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago. The tomb was open. The tomb was empty. And none of the alternative explanations actually are convincing at all. So let's just remind ourselves of what those alternatives are so we can see just how strong the evidence is. So here's the first. The Romans stole the body. But we have to ask about that, don't we? Why, when Christianity took um, off very soon afterwards and the Romans were so determined to stamp it out. We know they, they did. They were trying to kill Christians, trying to eliminate Christianity. Why would they not have produced the body? And we have to ask as well, what was their motive for stealing it? It's hard to see why allowing rumors of Jesus' resurrection was in any way in their interests. So it's not really plausible that the Romans stole the body. Here's the second alternative explanation. The Jewish leaders stole the body, and really the same arguments apply. They don't have a lack of, uh, they don't have a plausible motive, and in fact they had a very good motive for revealing Jesus's body as soon as the rumors of his resurrection started to circulate. We know beyond all doubt that the, the, the Jews who did not become Christians were determined to stamp out uh, Christianity. They ended up kicking the Christians out of the synagogues. There's no way that they would not have disclosed the body of Jesus if, in fact, they had stolen it. So we're left with the last alternative explanation, really. The disciples stole the body. And uh, this has got a practical difficulty, as does the last, actually, that the, the tomb was guarded, Matthew's Gospel tells us. Um, and also, um, again, there's a lack of motive for the disciples to do it. There's no record or suggestion that any of them benefited materially from the claim of the resurrection. And in any case, even if they had, why on earth would they be willing to die? And most of them were martyred for something that they knew to be untrue. Surely at that point, they would back down and say that they made it all up. Surely no one would give up their life for a lie. And related to that, there is, of course, the astonishing turnaround in morale and confidence of the disciples in the weeks that followed. And it simply can't be explained any other way than that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. And there are historical records, actually, of dozens of messianic movements, both before and after Jesus' death in those surrounding decades. There's lots of information about that. But in almost every case... The messianic leader was killed, in many cases executed. And after the leader's death, each of these movements invariably collapsed. Everybody went home and that was it, except for one. Only one of these movements did not collapse after the death of its leader. And not only did it not collapse, it exploded. In the course of about 300 years, the whole of the Roman world had heard the gospel 
many had come to faith. And we cannot explain that if we're, if we're completely honest about it and logical about it any other way other than that Jesus had risen from the dead, as well as, of course, the work of the Holy Spirit in guiding and empowering those who shared their faith across the world. So we should take massive confidence from the fact that um, these other explanations do not hold water and also from the fact, actually, that for the first 30 years of the growth of the church, which is the period Acts of the Apostles records for us, actually, most of the eyewitnesses were still alive. Our passage that we heard tonight told us, didn't it, that 500 people met the risen Jesus. And actually, the reference to some falling asleep is part of a sentence in which it tells us that most of them were still alive in 55 AD when Paul wrote that letter. The implication is clear. Why don't you go and ask these people if you want to check this out? And I think for the same reason, Luke and Matthew and Mark often put the names of people like Cleopas and Joanna and Mary, uh, mother of Jesus and others, um, who actually witnessed and met the risen Jesus. Why? Because I think they wanted to encourage people just to go and talk to them, just find out. And with the travel that went on at that time, you can be sure that if um, Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, that would have been exposed. And yet, it was not. Equally, you'd say too, that if the, if the, uh, uh, the writers of the Gospels um, had actually uh, wanted to make this up, they would never have chosen women as the first eyewitnesses. Why do I say that? Because we know at that time women had low status. We know that their evidence, their testimony, was not admissible in court, neither in Roman nor Jewish law. So the only reason the gospel writers put them in as the first eyewitnesses must be because they really were. There's no other logic for doing it. So put all that together, what have we got? I think we've got that the resurrection is the only explanation that makes sense of the evidence. No other explanation does. So we can be confident in talking about it, however skeptical the people we're talking to may appear to be. Ask them what they think happened and see where it gets you. The resurrection is very, very solid ground and we can be confident in talking about it. So that's my first point then. Here's the second. The resurrection makes sense of the Bible. And that's what that phrase, our preaching is useless, is getting at. It comes within a section of that letter in which Paul shows that if the resurrection didn't happen, actually the whole of Christianity falls apart. There's no point in preaching. There's no point in being here tonight. We might as well all go home. And let me just read some of the verses that really drive that home in that uh, chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul says this, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Verse 15, more than that, then we are found to be false witnesses about God. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Verse 18, then those who have also fallen asleep, that is who have died as believers, are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ. We are of all people most to be pitied. Really, really strong words, isn't it? Paul realizes that the whole 
thing is pointless if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But the fantastic thing is that God has given us the evidence so that we then can know that he did. And on that, actually, the whole Bible finds its foundation and fits together. And I want to talk a little bit more about that now. So, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that through Jesus dying in our place, we can be forgiven and we can enjoy eternal life with God. God is for us. That's our theme this Easter, and that's what the gospel is all about. But the proof that the cross worked and that we too can be resurrected is that Jesus rose from the dead. Without it, the cross and Jesus' ministry was simply a tragic failure, and his words were simply empty promises. And the resurrection is actually key to understanding the whole Bible, not just the New Testament, but actually the Old Testament as well. And I don't know if you've read the account of the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, where Jesus walks alongside two downcast disciples who don't realize who he is. Um, And they start talking to him about how sad they are, about how devastated they are about what has happened. And it's interesting, Jesus starts chatting to them. And the moment of revelation comes when Jesus says to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And this is the interesting bit, what comes next. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory and beginning not with Isaiah 53 or one or two of the other famous prophecies, but beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So what must that conversation have been like? What, what did Jesus say? We don't actually know. It's not recorded for us, but we can actually, by thinking about how the Old Testament points to Jesus, we can actually suggest it might be a little bit like this. Well, he may have started with the major prophets like Isaiah. And what the disciples would have known is that Isaiah in the first half of it predicts this great king who is coming. And they were very keen on that bit. Everyone was excited about the Messiah being a great king. Of course, they thought that he was coming to overthrow the Romans. And then you had the second half of Messiah, they would have, of, of the Isaiah as well predicting someone called a suffering servant. And we'll be looking at that as we look at Isaiah next term. But I think the crucial next step that no one had made and which Jesus probably would have started with was to point out that actually they're talking about the same person who would in fact be a very different sort of king, defeating not captivity to the Romans, but captivity to sin, as Isaiah 53 talked about. And then after explaining that, what might Jesus have said next? Well, perhaps he would have turned to the temple and the whole sacrificial system and said something like this. Well, let's just think about that. Do we really think that the blood of bulls and goats and little lambs really actually completely atoned for sins? That wouldn't make much sense, would it? But was it instead pointing to something? What if it was actually all pointing to the Messiah, who would be the ultimate sacrifice, who would completely atone for the sins of the people for all time. And then he might have turned to Ezekiel and Jeremiah, where it talks about a new covenant, and and this picture of actually God himself 
talking to people face to face, just like Jesus himself had done for those four wonderful years. And then he might have gone back to the patriarchs, the very first followers of God in Genesis and the subsequent books. For example, how the Messiah was actually like Isaac, the beloved son of the father, who was offered as a sacrifice, but nevertheless did not succumb to the power of death. And then how he was like the good and compassionate brother Joseph, who in his glory was not ashamed to acknowledge his brothers, however lowly and abject their condition. And then how he was like the great sacrifice um, of, of the bishop Melchizedek, who offered an eternal sacrifice once for all. And how he was like the sovereign lawgiver, Moses, writing his law on the tables of our hearts by the Spirit. And then how he was like the faithful captain and guide, Joshua, leading us into the promised land. And then how he was like the strong and powerful Samson, who by his death has overwhelmed all of his enemies. And then how he was like the victorious and noble King David, bringing all rebellious power to subjection. And then how he was like the magnificent and triumphant King Solomon, governing his kingdom in peace and prosperity. For do you see, once the resurrection happened and Jesus explained what it meant, they could see that the whole of the Bible and the whole of God's intervention in the world actually pointed to him. Imagine what it would have been like having that explained to you on the road to Emmaus and imagine what it was like going back to the other disciples and explaining it to them later on as well. It must have blown their minds and yet it should blow ours too. Without the resurrection, the Bible is frankly an unfinished story that makes little sense. But with it, it all fits together in a beautiful and astonishing way. We can be confident in trusting it, and we can be confident in sharing it. It all fits together, and the resurrection is the key. So now we've got to our final section, the final point, that the resurrection is a powerful message to the world. God is for us. That's our theme this year. And when the end comes, he will make everything right and all of our deepest longings will be fulfilled. And as Christians, I think we often lose sight of just how powerful and attractive the resurrection hope actually is. We forget what it is that most um, unchurched people, if you like, actually believe about the future, and we forget the fear and the emptiness that this uh, these beliefs or perhaps this confusion brings. So what hope does the the resurrection actually offer us? Well, it gives us hope for the future, that the future is personal, that it can be certain, and that it's unimaginably wonderful. And this is a message that people will really want to hear. This is good news. This is hope to a world that does not have hope. So let's think about those things a little bit more. Because many people today don't instinctively believe in an afterlife. I don't know what the latest opinion poll findings are of that kind of thing. Um, But certainly there are plenty of people today who naturally assume we die and that's it. I've certainly got family members who would believe that. 
And yet that's not that different to the New Testament context. The Sadducees certainly didn't believe in the resurrection. Neither did many of the Greek philosophers. And many other ordinary Jews and Gentiles were none the wiser either. But if you talk to someone who'd been an eyewitness of the resurrection, if you talk to one of them and saw their changed lives and believed the credibility of their account, well then finally you knew that we are not just dust in the wind. You know that we're, just, we're not just a stone that's going to sink to the bottom, that there really is a future. Just as we can say to people today who maybe are as every bit as sure that there is no future, well, actually, the resurrection says, yes, there is. There is hope. This life is not the end. And second then, the resurrection tells us that the future is personal. And once again, the context today in our increasingly secular West and the context then are really not that different at all. You might have heard of the Stoics from which we get the word stoical. And the Stoics had a big influence at that time in the Greek-speaking world. And they said that when you die, you do continue to exist but not as your personal self. Rather, you become part of the soul where you become part of the substance of the world. And people today often say similar things, actually, like when you die, you become part of the universe. Or if you've seen the Lion King, like the circle of life, you become part of the fertilizer and out of which plants grow up that other living things eat. And the argument would be you become part of the world, and so there's no reason to be afraid of death. And yet the truth is that without the Holy Spirit, the deepest desire of the human heart is that we want to be loved. And we recognize that in ourselves, don't we? We want to be loved. We want to be with our loved ones. And the one thing we do not want to lose is to lose our loved ones. The one thing we do not want is love that we lose. But the belief in a non-personal future means that when you die, everything that matters to you is being stripped away from you. Death takes away your loved ones and eventually takes you away from your loved ones. And you lose your personality. And we're kidding ourselves if we don't think that that is something to fear. But compare that with the hope that comes from the resurrected Jesus. He came to his disciples and said, look, it's me, it is I myself, look at me, here are the wounds. And that means that your future is personal too. And actually a personal future is the only one that's gonna satisfy the human heart. And when we talk to secular people, they may well say, I'm not afraid of death. But the thing that comes into my mind is, you are a liar. You are. And who would not want to be, attra- or who would not be attracted actually to the sort of future that the resurrection presents? One where our personality is still there. And when we can experience love forever and the greatest love that we will ever experience. Then third, we can be certain about our eternal destiny. It's one thing to know there's a possibility of heaven, as many people today would hold out that they think there is a possibility of heaven and they often hope for it in times of grief and times of anxiety. 
But it's one thing to know there's a possibility of heaven. It's quite another thing to be sure of it. And if you ask a Muslim uh, today whether they're going to heaven, they won't be able to tell you. And if you ask a nominal Christian whether they know whether they're going to heaven, well, and if so, why? They will either say they don't know, or if they do give an answer, it may be so unconvincing that they'll end up doubting their previous assumptions. Yet certainty is available. Certainty is what Jesus offers us. And as Christians, we need have no such doubts. Think about it like this. If you go to jail because 10 years in jail is the punishment for the crime that you've committed, the day you come out of jail, the, the means is paid. The law has no more claim on you. The punishment has been paid. You've been in jail for 10 years. And now the day that you walk out, it's paid. It's gone. And Jesus Christ went into death. The wages of sin is death. And when he came out of the grave, that meant it was paid. That's how you know it was paid. So you can think of the resurrection, if you like, as a receipt. If you're in a department store and you, you buy an object, you always ask for the receipt, don't you? So that you know that if you're stopped by a security person, you can just show it and pass on through. And the resurrection is a giant receipt stamped right across history for all people to see so that you can know that your future is certain if you believe in Jesus Christ. What comfort, what assurance, and what security that brings. But finally, not only does the resurrection tell us that the future is there, that it's personal and that it can be certain, but also that it's unimaginably wonderful. You'll know probably the words of Revelation 21 where it says, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Or as 1 Corinthians 2 puts it, no eye has seen, no ear has heard and no human mind has conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love him. God is for us and he has an amazing place for us what Jesus himself frequently referred to as paradise. And the reason we can look forward to these things is that Jesus rose from the dead. It's going to be imaginably wonderful, and yet there's no other religion, there's no other faith, no other philosophy, and no other person who has ever offered the world this kind of future, a future that's there, a future that's personal, a future that's certain, and a future that is beyond our wildest dreams. There is no more powerful message possible, and it's based on historical fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So don't you want that? I certainly do. Of course we do. And so we should say to our friends and our family when we get the opportunity, why wouldn't you want this too? Even as if they don't like this aspect or that aspect of Christian teaching, why wouldn't you want that? You know, we're not being honest with ourselves or they're not being honest with themselves if they say they don't want that. 
The picture of Christian hope confirmed by the resurrection is a wonderfully compelling, attractive, enticing hope. And actually, it's what everyone wants. It fulfills their deepest desires. Our job is just to help people to see that and see what it really means. Well, I started with those questions, didn't I? How confident do you feel about your faith? How confident do you feel about sharing your faith? Well, I hope as we've thought about the resurrection afresh, that's just reminded us that we can be very confident. God has given us everything we need and the resurrection is the key. The resurrection is the proof. The resurrection is the receipt. The resurrection is the ticket. The resurrection is the promise. And it is a wonderful thing to share with absolutely anyone who's willing to hear it from us. So I want to pray for us now and pray for us through the rest of this service as we respond that actually God would be building in us the confidence that he wants us to have and that he would be building in us the willingness to be used, the boldness and the love that wants everyone to hear this message for themselves. So let's, let's just take a moment just to maybe just say to God where you feel at with those questions at the moment. How confident do you feel? And I want to then just pray for us now. Father, thank you that you are for us. And Lord, I pray for every person here tonight that you would strengthen us in our conviction that we can share this good news, that we can be confident that this truly is a wonderful hope and that it is actually the answer to what everyone is longing for. Father, I pray that you would show us who are the people that you want us to be able to talk naturally about these things with. Father, I pray that you would show us who you want us to show the love that you have for every person in this world and who you want us to show that to. And Father, I pray that you would fill us all afresh with your spirit and with that sense that actually the resurrection changes everything and with the resurrection comes such a wonderful such a life-changing such a compelling such a convincing understanding of who we are and what you have done for us and what we can look forward to so, Father, would you use us? Would you embolden us? 
And would we trust in your resurrection power at work in us? Amen.